Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books Network. This is Shu Wang, your host of, of New, New Books Network. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Mara Du to join us to introduce her newest book, State and the Family in China. The first thing I want to do here is to invite Dr. Du to introduce herself to us. Hi, Shu. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to share my research with you. My name is Mara Du, and I'm currently teaching a teen and Republican history at the Department, Department of History at Cornell University. And of course, I'm the author of uh, State and Family in China, Filial Parity and Its Modern Reform, which was published in 2022 by Cambridge University Press. Okay, thank you so much for your introduction. So next question I want to ask you is that I want to invite you to talk about the reason why you take interest in the research subject of relationship between family and the state in Chinese history. Uh, That's a great uh, question. The title of the book actually was originally designed as State is Family. Uh, I got that title from the poster uh, of the so-called China Dream series, and there was a poster. It's called Guo Shi Jia. So I thought, oh, that's a that's a good uh, title. But then it seems that I think eventually the editor and I decided together that that one seems to be a bit too uh, explicit or uh, politicized. So we decided to have the basic state and family. Basic in this title, it means Guo Jia, right? And I grew up in China. I got my um, bachelor's degree, and also master's degree uh, at Peking University. So for me, really, uh, growing up, I just heard like the whole word guo and guojia as sort of like uh, equivalence to each other. And people always talk about, you know, a state is family or a state is a family writ large. And if there's no state, there's no family or is that or so, you know, I think naturally for me, I was curious about what was the real relationship between state and the family. Um, and also there were more uh, contemporary uh, reasons why I chose this topic as my dissertation topic. So this is my first book, State and the Family is my first book. It was based on my dissertation. So when I was conducting my archival research for my dissertation, uh, starting from 2013, 14, something like that. Then there was a big campaign on China Dream and there were a lot of posters basically everywhere when I was conducting archival research that, you know, we talk about state, uh, AIDS family, right? That's one Guo Shi Jia. And then Xiaodangxian, uh, filial party comes first. So basically the, the, the theme of state family was everywhere in propaganda. So it really reminded me that it's something that is not even passed. So it must be very important. And also personally, um, I my son was born in 2013. So the whole time my, 
when I was in graduate school, prepare for the um, qualified exam, and then um, conducting archival research, um, writing dissertation really was accompanied by the whole life of my son uh, and myself as a new mom. So I thought about, you know, parenthood and then reflected on my own parents and their love for me and my love for my child. So something like that. So it's, uh, it's a combination of um, my interest in state and uh, the relationship between state and family and also my a little bit my personal history. Yeah. Thank you so much for your answer. I want to say I also grew up in China, so I totally understand, you know, in Chinese context, the boundary between family and state is so tricky and is the understanding of the boundary is so different from uh, from that in the United States. So now let's turn to your books. So for my for your book, my first question is that I want to invite you to talk about three instances of Qing law that humi- sorry, humiliated, tormented, or executed rebellious children as a public performance that identify imperial authority with infallible parental authority. Yeah, thank you for the great question. And um, before we start on the details, I wonder whether I can give a little bit overview of my book. So it's really a book, of course, as the title suggests, it's a book on state family relations from the angle of filial parity or intergenerational relations. Uh, I chose this angle partly because there were already a lot of good books on gender relations and the state um, building, either empire building or nation building on China. So I think, you know, intergenerational relation was uh, an area that I was understudied. And I think it's probably as important, if not more so, for politics, I mean, like filial parity, for politics than gender relations. So I think, oh, it's maybe it's, very important for me to uh, step in to offer an overview. And the book is divided into two parts. The first part is on Qing China as an example of the whole dating period China. Basically, when I wrote the chapters, I thought about me and Qing China, and a little bit actually into the Tang Song as well in certain aspects. And then the second half, the chapter four to six, is on the Republican reforms and how basically the parent-child hierarchy was turned upside down uh, during the uh, first half of the 20th century with uh, the conclusion of uh, the PRC, the People's Republic of China. So the, um, you know, Shu, thanks for the question on uh, the, uh, the first chapter on how, um, how the whole hierarchy was constructed through law, right? At least enforced through the law, especially I, the title of my chapter, uh, the first chapter is called Parents can never be wrong, and it's basically the literal translation of "天下无不是的父母." So basically, for children at least, uh, parents can parents can never be wrong. And later, uh, hopefully, we go there that this sort of parental infallibility was uh, analogous to the infallibility of the emperor and also the magistrate at least where the subjects were concerned. But how it was implemented, it wasn't just like oh, ruling. Um, uh, all under heaven through filial party. It wasn't just a rhetoric or indoctrination, didactic, like taxes, etc. It was really in the everyday, right? And and I gave three instances, and all of them were from the 1830s. And every chapter I usually start, uh, especially the first chapter uh, of the Qing part and the first chapter of the Republican part, I usually start from a case study that speaks to multiple uh, 
sub uh, thesis of this chapter. And then within each section, there were multiple cases from local archives, central archives, uh, different places, etc. But why I use like three cases from the 1830s? Because you can see that even within this like 1830s, you have different types of cases from different places, all supported my uh, central argument that the team really um, invested a lot of resources to uphold the notion of parental infallibility. So the first is um, it's a very typical case uh, from, this case is from uh, the, the Baudi County Archives, now uh, very close to uh, present Beijing. Um, then it was a widow, her name was uh, Wang Yanshi. So she went to the county court to say, my son is unfailing and she uh, he drinks a lot. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't give me money. He responded to me defiantly. So she asked. Basically, she asked the magistrate to arrest the son and punish the son. She didn't say like you should punish it this and that way. And then the magistrate sent people to arrest this son. So the the widow didn't have to do, do anything. And then the magistrate can you the son can you basically means that it's called dai jia. There was a big wood a block and with three holes and one big hole for the head and two smaller holes to hold the, the hand. And it's called Dai Jiao Kangyu. So he Kangyu'd this guy for 20 days at the county hall or Yaman Da Tang, right? It was a really public humiliation. Uh, and then release him only when his mom came to a court again to say, yeah, yes, my son Koto to me, Koto, right? Kneel to me again and said, he realized that, you know, the inescapability and severity of the web of the law. So now he repented, and now, you know, I give my consent that you can release him. And then the county magistrate asked Wang Yanshi to sign a document to say, yes, I take my son back. But next time if he uh, disobeys me, I'll send him back. So it, it's very typical. There are all sorts of this, like this sort of cases can be found in all those local archives that we still have today from the team, that the parents sometimes, especially widow mothers, but sometimes fathers as well, they they can get a bunch of guys to um, to to send the son to the county court, or they just go to the court to say like, oh, my son is this uh, 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 like a filial party, and then the county magistrate would send the team to arrest the guy to beat him or kangyu him. And the worst scenario, they might put the song into a, it's called standing cage, Long. So it was a kangyu on the top, and then it, it, it was in a cage. So the, the guy couldn't move even. It was really uh, torture, and publicly, right? And then until uh, the parent offered his or her consent, and the, the guy would be released, and the court didn't charge a fee for this sort of service. And then it wasn't just a local service. The longest I saw in the local archives was actually a Chifu county sent, some, sent a document to Ba County. Chifu was in like eastern China, and the Ba County was in southwestern China. It's like 2,000 kilometers. And then they were trying to find a disobedient song to try to send him back to Chifu to be published. Uh, oh, no, published, punished. So you can see like the, the Qing... Uh, really devoted a lot of resources into helping parents discipline their adult sons, right? And it doesn't have to be a super uh, serious punishment involved. It wasn't like exile, something like that. It was just a local uh, punishment. 
but still it was a didactic show because you know everybody could say that and the torment would not end until the parent wanted so you know gave the parent a lot of uh, leverage in the daily negotiation of family power with their adult sons and the second was um, a case from Xing uh, An Huilan. Um, it was a published um, kids book translated usually as uh, conspectors of judicial cases. And this case was selected into this sort of leading case book um, under a weird title. So it's called Son Did Not Actually Disobey Parental Instructions, but His Mother Still Committed Suicide as a Result of His Disobedience. It's weird. I will explain why it's like that. So what happened was there was a son called Liu Jiting, and he was always a failure son according to neighbors, etc. And then his mom did something that was illegal and inappropriate. So basically, his mom served as a mediator in helping her neighbor uh, sell the neighbor's daughter-in-law into another, into a second marriage. And they got some money. He and she had she had a share. And then Liu Zhiqing thought it was illegal. It was wrong, basically morally wrong. So she said, you know, uh, he said he uh, gently tried to gently persuade his mom that you know it's not very good. So shall we return the money? Right? We don't need to argue with them. We just don't get the money. So we at least we we are not doing anything wrong. And his mom, of course, was like dismissing him. So he didn't dare to argue with her, but he, the Liu Zhiqing still didn't feel comfortable. So he saved the money himself to pay back, the, uh, pay, 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 pay that neighbor. And, and at least in his heart, like we are not getting the money, right? But his mom heard about it from the neighbor. So she felt she was humiliated by her son, even though her son didn't do anything to her and she committed suicide. The issue here, why the case was selected because there was a statute in the Qingko that assigned the death penalty to sons who disobey parental instructions and cause parents to commit suicide. However, parental instructions were regarded as good instructions. And now, obviously, her mom was doing something that was not good and illegal, actually. And also, he didn't argue with her, right? And then even the judicial officials express a lot of sympathy. He said, like, Liu Shiqing did exactly what he was supposed to do as a filial son, because he said, So he didn't follow his mom's ill-advised order when she failed to listen, right? However, even though, just as the title indicated, right, title of the case, that the parental instruction was supposed to be Good instructions, righteous instructions. Obviously, it wasn't a parental instruction, right? If we define it that way. However, his mom just committed suicide. Somebody needed to be held responsible. Then Liu Zhiqing eventually still was held responsible. He received the punishment just one degree, reduced from the original punishment. So he was exiled to Xinjiang. And then the judicial officials tried to make sense of what was really going on. He said, yes. Liu Zhiqing did everything he could. He did everything good. However, they said, 人子之于父母,有顺无为,有隐无犯. So a child should be obedient to parents without any disagreement. And he should conceal parents' crimes without any offense. So even though he did something good, but because his mom did something that was actually wrong, but for him, he needed to uh, obey anyway. And it was a crack 
order for him, even though it wasn't the correct order for anybody else, and he was still exiled. But you can see that was really about infallibility of parents for children, even though the parental instructions themselves were nonsense in this case. And the third one uh, was from the Xinke Tipen or the central uh, central uh, level judicial archives that were mostly handling this sort of like uh, capital cases and the serious cases submitted from or, or different places. And then it involved a woman. Her name was Ji Zhao Shi. So Ji was um, her husband's surname. Zhao was her father's surname. And Shi obviously means like just a woman, right? And what happened was she was the only child. So to support her father, she brought in a Yuxui local husband. And then one day, her husband failed to prepare food and wine. Not, not for need, actually. He did prepare food for uh, his parents, pa- uh, father-in-law, but there was no meat, no wine. And they were super poor. And then, and then Ji Zhao Shi's baby son was crying nonstop. So her father really got upset and started to beat Ji Zhao Shi. And then tried to make her her divorce her husband, which was illegal. It's called Zhu Xu Jianyu, kick out uh, local husband in favor of the next one. So it was totally illegal. She was not supposed to follow that order. But when she tried to back her father to say, no, we shouldn't do that. Actually, it was already the second time she did that before. For a woman at that time, it was a lot of pressure like, for her not to do something like that. And then her father seriously injured her in the beating, and she sort of like fought back uh, spontaneously and accidentally hurt him, and he died. And then even though she was a married daughter who had a lower degree of mourning relationship with her natal parents, but still offending her own father was just violation of so-called human fundamental human ethics. So she was sentenced to death by slicing, or qian dao wan gua, right? The lin qi is like, Cutting by one thousand cuts, not not as many as thousand, but you know. And and there was a special legal procedure introduced during the Qianlong time, eighteenth century, that any other capital cases were subject to review, but not felicide cases and treason cases. So this case was not supposed to be reviewed by the emperor before the execution was carried out. However. Uh, the execution was delayed, not because she was a woman, etc., but she was pregnant. So according to the Qing law for the child, she the execution took place one month after the child was born to protect the child. And it didn't really matter that she was a daughter, she was a married daughter, she was not part even, to be honest, like her and her father was not even part of the household, legally speaking. But killing her father in self-defense, just led to death by slicing, period. And in the narrative provided by the judicial officials, they really felt sympathy because they understood that Ji Zhao Shi was in an impossible position. And that guy, her father, was very unreasonable. All the neighbors didn't, didn't like him. He seems to be like ill-tempered and troublemaker. Nobody liked him. But it didn't change the result. How, how, it doesn't matter, like, all those people felt sympathy. Even the judicial officials felt sympathy for Ji Zhao Shi, but Ji Zhao Shi still suffered the consequences, even though her father was asking her to do something that was illegal. So it was really for children, even an illegal order needed to be followed. And the children couldn't even 
question, it wasn't in his or her role to question whether the order was appropriate. Yes. And these are the three, uh, um, three, um, three cases. But what I want to show in this chapter is really this sort of parental infallibility for children was absolute. And the, the Qing court did, the Qing court, the Qing legal system did invest in upholding this principle. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. I very appreciate your discussion about, I would say, about the Qing government's use of use of punishment as a public performance in its legal system. So for next question, I want to invite you to talk about how local actors ex- sorry, exploited legally sanctioned filiality to advance their perceived interest in court. So there's an old saying in Chinese called "Shangyou Zhengce, Xiaoyou Duice." So the, the the title of this uh, chapter is called uh, "Policies and Counter Strategies." Basically, I'm really referring to the old Chinese saying of "Shangyou Zhengce, Xiaoyou Duice." Right. So there was a, a legally upheld uh, hierarchy between parents and children, and the state had its own intention. And then the people really learned to use this hierarchy very quickly, just as in many other cases. So this case uh, is div- uh, this chapter is divided into two parts, and I will use two cases from each part to demonstrate. The first part is on um, it's called a uh, false accusation, uh, use of filicide to falsely accuse others. So it came from uh, one. A statute in the Great Qing Court is called So kill one's child or grandchild for the purpose of framing a false accusation against another person. So it, it showed that actually the Qing Court was aware of this existence because the, 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 the basic structure was killing one's own child led to no punishment or very little punishment. But killing a stranger was a big deal. So a lot of people understood like killing one's own child was nothing, so they killed their own child to accuse a stranger to say like, he or she killed my child. And you know, even if it was figured out as a parent, the mother would not be punished very seriously because he was a parent or she was a parent, right? But neighbor, if it was proved that the neighbor actually killed the child, even though it was a small child. For the neighbor, it was just another stranger. So they would suffer greatly. They could use the corpse of the child either to falsely accuse an opponent or to use it as a bargaining chip to say, you need to give me some money or agree my conditions. If not, I will use my basically my child's body to accuse you and you will suffer, I will not, something like that. Um, and the, the case I would discuss, there, there were a lot of cases, all of those cases, almost all of them are local cases because, um, because this sort of killing one's child or grandchild to falsely accuse others did not lead to serious punishment, to be honest. So they were not uh, the cases to be revealed by the central government. So we cannot find in the central level archives. But in local archives, there were a lot. And many of them were not labeled as, oh, killing one's a uh, kid or grandkid uh, to form a uh, false accusation against others. The reason I will explain in one minute. So I use this case. It's called Huang Xingren case. It was the first one that I really encountered in my uh, archival research. It was basically a guy. Uh, he submitted a report that he said, like my uh, nephew from the female line, uh, Xu. So it's basically his sister's 
song, right? Came to my house and the, taking his small daughter. It's an infant daughter, it's like two months old. And he threw his own daughter to the ground and the girl died. He tried to falsely accuse me and I did nothing. So you need to like rest that guys, just relieve me from any responsibility. And then all those people, including the nephew, the uncle, you know, everyone involved was taken to the county court. They started to investigate. Then you can see this testimony was changed again and again and again and again. The county magistrate, I think with his con- uh, connivance, right, eventually allowed this testimony to change to the extent that it became an accidental death. And you can see like how that changed. The first report was, oh, that the, the, the father threw his infant daughter to the ground to falsely accuse another person. The second version would be, oh, it was accidental death, but nobody wanted to take care of the girl until the girl there cried and then died. And the third version was that the girl dropped on the ground by accident. Everybody involved wanted to save her, got a doctor, but then she died anyway. And then eventually the case was closed as an accident. And then the legal secretary of the magistrate had this note that, oh, you know, because it's an accident, we don't need to report. That's why we have so many loose ends there, because obviously it's, a, it's, it's not true, right? It's not, you know, we, we cannot be 100% sure it's, um, it's, it's not an accident, but it doesn't seem to be the case. But because nobody would review this case again, so they left all those loose ends in the file. Nobody cared because nobody would review that. And for the county magistrate, they had motivation to transform those sort of filicide cases into accidents. Because once that happened, this case could be handled locally. Nobody would got involved, and, and he didn't need to uh, let these documents go through rounds and rounds of review. That could lead to all sorts of like, other issues, right? And then I, you know, I, that, I was really shocked when I read this file, because that was the first year like, I left my son behind. I went here, he was... For me, he was a, bo- a baby, and then there was something like that. And then I, oh, I understand. Probably a lot of Felisa cases was not recorded as Felisa but accidents. Then I started digging into these local accidental cases, and then found a lot of like, very suspicious cases. And to be honest, I was really shocked because how this could have happened, and why these magistrates actually didn't care. I think they, they just want to keep these cases acts accidents, right? So it was easy for them. But then it, it's just one of the many cases that the filicide cases were um, transformed at the local level into accidents for all the, the, the benefit of almost all involved living parties. And the parents had the final say in closing the cases, and they did. So nobody would bother to you know, pursue justice for those little cases. But why the courts thought connaving at this sort of thing was not a big deal because there was a notion that you know children owe their life to their parents so if their parents to be honest wanted to kill them it was very small issue even if it was punished these sort of cases were punished as a case involving felicide for the purpose of falsely accusing others it would still lead to like three years of penal servitude it was way less than the punishment for um, homicide of a stranger. So it was just, you know, the, the team just didn't take this sort of cases seriously. 
not to mention like abusing children or killing children in accidents, it was nothing. Right. And people were smart. They knew like, oh, you know, there was a, a hierarchy between parents and children killing one's own kids or nothing. So they used this for their supposed perceived interest. Of course, I think most people living today in China or uh, anywhere else in the world would not perceive like getting a small amount of money or whatever out of the, the corpse of one's dead baby is a self-interested but back then especially for small girls girls they were not that useful to be honest for parents and and that it really changed the way people thought about what were their interests and the second one was the other side of the coin that oh the parents had a lot of authority right and children's lives were nothing but parents authority was a lot. So there were a lot of cases you can see at the local level to falsely accuse others of being unfilial. And sometimes you can see like, oh, people impersonate other people's parents. And you know, now we have like a, a, a photos, etc. But back then, we really don't know who is whom, right? The court, you know, there were multiple cases. And I, I, I use a, a, a little sort of like dramatic cases here from 1897, the Bar County. So there was a woman called Zhao Chenxi. She was 47 Sui, right? So it's probably like 46 years old, 45. And she submitted a suit against her, you know, what she called as her son. And she said, oh, that's the son from my late husband's previous marriage. But legally speaking, he was her son, right? And, and my son kept all my husband's estate to himself without supporting me or my younger son properly. So he was he lacked filial piety and the court should like take him and punish him, etc. And then that guy was uh, summoning to court and then that guy is called uh, Zhao Shihua had to mobilize a bunch of people, including a lot of like civil degree holders or military degree holders, provincial level, right? To prove that he was actually not her son, rather that lady was the mother of his former apprentice. So this Zhao Shihua was a doctor, uh, the Chinese physician. And what happened seemed to be, uh, after all those evidence was collected, uh, that Zhao, uh, that that apprentice mother was actually the lover of this uh, doctor, and they, you know, it was the the, the word was not very clear. It was like. After the death of my son, she often came here to, you know, whatever. It's obvious like they had a sort of sexual relationship for a while until they fell apart. And then she steals some opium from him and, you know, took her son away. And then the opium was a tricky thing because at that point, like, opium was technically legal, but um, obviously it was a regarded as a big problem in society. So the uh, the court would not uh, support his claim that, you know, to, to ask her to compensate him. But she also didn't want to compensate him. And then one day, her son, Zhao Chenxi's son, ran into Zhao Shihua, and Zhao Shihua took the son to the local community leaders to say, uh, to let them to present over the issue, to say, like, I want my opium back, right? Opium worth a lot of money. And then what Zhao Chenxi resorted to was to impersonate Zhao Shihua's mother and got all those cases into the local court. And at that point, Qing, 
Qing, the Qing legal system was really troubled by this judicial backlog. And a lot of people have way more serious cases, couldn't get their cases to be heard by the magistrates uh, for years. But then one of the strategies many uh, uh, employed was to say, oh, it involved the lack of federal parity. So once they got, according to a procedure, once the litigants got the case into the system, the, the, the magistrate would continue to hear the case. So you can see sometimes they say, oh, this lack of federal parity. And then, then the federal parity thing was dropped. All those economic disputes continue to be heard. So you can see in this case, Zhao Chenxi really tried not to compensate for the opium, right? He wanted to get some support from the magistrate, but knew that her case was like really trouble case. And then she used the leverage of failure party to get her case into the system to be heard basically just one month after she submitted cases. And she got everything she wanted and she didn't need to compensate for the opium. And she was not punished. Uh, in theory, she should be punished. But because she was a woman, she said, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm ignore, ignoring women. So she was not punished. And there were other cases that these impersoners sometimes got a small amount of money because the magistrate usually want to appease that party, even if she or he was not the real parent. And there were all sorts of false accusations or impersonation, etc., like to say, oh, that guy, like a failure party. But why it worked? Why they could get the magistrate's air so quickly? Because the magistrate could not afford having a case in violation of fundamental human ethics. If it was truly a case of that, then it could lead to serious consequences to the magistrate if it was found out. And in my book, I had other cases to say that if it was truly a uh, lack of failure parity case, it could lead to consequences if the magistrate didn't handle it properly or quickly. So it was easy for the people to use this system to get their cases into the um, into legal procedure and the, just using lack of failure parity as some sort of like bargaining chip. But you know, what I want to um, discuss in this chapter is not just the agency, like people were smart, they were resourceful, they understood the law, but also how law helped to shape people's understanding of proper human relations. Because by using this system, the um, consumers of the law or the local actors, they reinforce this hierarchy of parent and child and reinforce the norm that parents could never be wrong, right? And on the one hand, of course, the Qing state didn't want them to use this, abuse this system. On the other hand, fundamentally speaking, they involved the people in supporting this hierarchy that you know, fundamentally supported the imperial system. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. Um, I really appreciate your discussion of how the common people in Qing China took their agency and played with the politics of a filial party. So for the next question, I want to invite you to talk about how the legal mechanism of a state-sponsored filiality integrate with the Qing political order. Yeah, so my book was, um, I think I, I really appreciate this question because my book, fundamentally speaking, even though a lot of cases are from legal archives, it seems to be about the family, law, etc. But ultimately, it's about politics. And 
I discuss failure part. There are a lot of works out there discussing failure part, but most people discuss a Confucian prescriptions, classics. They will say, oh, failure part is good for modern world, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm not saying that their position is not valid, but when we talk about filial piety or the cult of filial piety or filiality, what we are talking about? Are we talking about what Confucius wanted more than 2,000 years ago? Or are we talking about how late in period China, the, the government enforced filial piety, how people understood filial piety rather than this rosy description, right? For example, I just use... Um, one sentence from uh, Confucius, uh, he said, like, oh, you know, we should have food, right? So fathers should be um, benevolent and sons should be filial, right? But in reality, in the legal practice of Latin period China, it doesn't matter whether parents were benevolent. Only unfilial children were punished. And even if parents were not benevolent, the children uh, were still required to be filial. Right, just as you know, uh, that was a guess. Actually, it was uh, this sentence was uh, created during the Song Dynasty. The next sentence, next clause that followed was, uh, So even if parents, uh, our father was not benevolent, the son must still be failure. It was against Confucian prescription, but that was the so-called Confucian norms that were upheld by late imperial Chinese law, not the Confucian prescription, right? Why? Because this extreme version of filial piety or one-sided version of filial piety that privileged only those in power served imperial rule. So it was not the filial piety of Confucianism. Rather, it was the filial piety in the name of Confucianism. It was instrumentalized, politicized. And why? And we then we need to look at the Qin. Right? It was the empire. And when we distinguish like empire, pre-modern empire, early modern empire from modern nation states, we are thinking about, oh, empires are a layered governance, right? It was not direct. And there were a lot of mediators Right, and the empires were ruled relatively cheaply, as a lot of recent scholarship on Qing physical state. Right, low level equilibrium. It means the tax was low, but the Qing operated on a low tax regime. Then how it could control the population? Right, the easiest way was through delegation and through um, filial party to let every layer to control their own subordinates, right? And uh, I will read one quote from the Qianlong Emperor uh, in 1736, just after he ascended to the throne. He was in the, this immediate context was he was talking about Dai Tu Gui or transforming uh, local chieftainships into direct administration. And there were a lot of like local governors who didn't want to continue after the Yongzhi Emperor's death, and the Qianlong Emperor wanted to continue and to persuade them to be on board. And he said, I govern all under heaven only for public good and with absolute justice. I subject myself to heaven, and I work hard to govern the people. As son of heaven, I parent the people on behalf of heaven. Dai Tianzini so that I can fulfill my duty as the people's father-mother, Wei Min Fumu. Can people's father-mother see his children thrown into fire and water, but not strive to save them? Your provincial officials are those who act as parents 
on my behalf for the people under your jurisdictions, Dai Zhen Zimi, etc., etc. Then he continued to talk about the uh, uh, Gai Tu Gui Liu, the policy, etc. But what he tried to do was to say first, the emperor was father mother, with all those parental authority enjoyed by father mother, also enjoyed by the emperor, right? Second, the subjects knew nothing. It was an infantilized, passive subject, right? Because he said, you know, you know, this local meal, those local indigenous people, they resist it because they're stupid, basically. They don't know, they're suffering. I know better than them. They're in water and fire. I'm fighting them to save them. That's my duty as a father mother. You can see the people are infantilized. People don't know their own interests. Only the emperor, as a father mother, know exactly the same logic as only the father mother know the best interests of children. The children don't know, right? Infantilized subjects. And third, it was a layered imperial governance. The emperor was not the real father mother, right? The real father was heaven, mother was earth, and he was son of heaven. So heaven delegated the parental power to son of heaven. So Dai Tianzimi parental all under heaven, on behalf of heaven. However, he was not ruling the people directly, but through the governors, magistrates, etc., layers, right? And the Dai Zhenzimi, you local officials, are parenting your subjects or people under your jurisdictions on my behalf. Right? You can see this is really quintessential imperial rule, layer, layer, layer. And and not just like magistrates or governors, but also different layers of people of authorities. They all control their subordinates and everyone submit themselves to layers, a network of uh, superiors, right? And everyone controlled his or her own um, subordinates and everyone submit him or herself to uh, all sorts of superiors that made ruling stability, right? Maintaining stability easy and at low cost. But why, you know, how, how to prevent the, the, the creation of smaller kingdoms, right? How to prevent the, 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 the scenario as in medieval Europe that, oh, my lord, lord is not my lord. There was a ritual legal mechanism, it's called Tong Yu united under one supreme authority. How it worked. So there were layers of parental authority. So you just submit yourself to the lowest level, your parents. But if there is a higher level, such as your grandparents or the emperor, etc., they basically, once they step in, they overrode the lower level authority. Just use a case. So there was a case um, from the 19th century, 1849. There was a central level case of Tian Fuyu. So this Tian Fuyu was a guy, he was super poor. He lived in the same bed with his own father and his daughter. And he was sexually abuse his own daughter. So his father was really very angry and threatened to send him to a county court for discipline. And then he killed his own father and used his own father's body to falsely accuse a neighbor. But, you know, the, obviously God exposed, etc. But the, the daughter just disappeared because the, her relatives tried to hide her so that she would not be able to testify against her own father. But eventually, she was found by the imperial government, the imperial authorities who say, not just like the girl was allowed to testify against her own father, which was usually not allowed, right? And the children were not allowed to even testify against his or her own parents. 
but she was obliged to testify against her own father because it was not her interest that was at stake. It was her grandfather's interest that was at stake. And her grandfather was a supreme authority over not just her, but also her father. Tong Yu Suozun united and the supreme authority within the household that was her grandfather. So she was dragged out from her hiding place and was forced to testify against her own father. Not because she was sexually abused, but because her father killed her grandfather. Right? And that was the logic. But then the persons at the lower positions were not allowed to drag in persons of supreme positions just to defend his or her own interests, right? Because only when the supreme authority step in, right, or you defend the interests of the supreme authority, you could uh, work against the immediate authority. That was how this sort of ritual legal logic work. There were a lot of cases you can find in my book, but it's just one case. Just as, you know, also I said the Qianlong Emperor, he really made a fantastic um, analogy when he basically, when he, uh, during one of his sudden tours, there was a flood, uh, and then the Qianlong Emperor re- uh, issued some edicts to, re- uh, to, uh, to lead to some like flood release, and there, there was a guy who basically tried to tell the Qianlong Emperor that, oh, as just average person, we really didn't receive any relief, even though you issued this edicts. That means the provincial officials were not doing their job. But the Qianlong Emperor, rather addressing this issue, handed this guy to provincial governor for punishment. Why? Right? And he said, yes, you know, I understand it's wrong for the provincial governor to not obey my order. However, I would not tolerate the person of inferior status to use me against the mid- middle-level um, authority. And he said, you know, even though a grandfather really loved the grandson, but he would not tolerate grandson to accuse the father, because then that would like, lead to chaos, Right. This is a malicious practice that cannot be tolerated. You guys, you subjects, just need to wait patiently. And I, as emperor, I will handle this uh, misbehaving officials. You can see this logic. It was first very layered. Second, the su- supreme authority could step in to override the authority of a lower authority. However, the, 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 the people on the, at the bottom was not allowed to drag in this higher level authority if what was at stake was only their own interest rather than state interest or the interest of a higher authority. So there was a huge um, set of logic that helped to make this system really work coherently to help the imperial government to basically take good use of the cult of filial piety that was deeply rooted in Chinese society to support its own rule to maintain social stability. Yeah. yeah thank you so much again for your answer. And I want to say I really appreciate your discussion about filial priority in, I want to say, in the Qing state's governance and the government polity. So now let's turn to the Republican period of Chinese history. So for the next question, I want to invite you to talk about how early Republican and nationalist criminal and civil codes change the focus of parent-child relations. 
Yes. Um, so before I uh, thank you for the question, I before I, I, I might be a little bit longer on this question, because before I go into details about how they change things and to give a short overview of the legal reforms of the 20th, early 20th century, because there were a bunch of different calls. And I will mostly focus on the nationalist period because there, there were waves of reforms. If I cover all of them, we need like another hour just on this single question. But basically, the uh, the as you know, the audience know, uh, the Republican period was uh, divided in, usually into two um, parts. The first was the early Republic or the Beiyang Zhengfu, right, uh, between 1912 and 1928, and then the Nationalist period between 1928 to 1949 in mainland China. So the the the, the early Republic had a sort of divided legal regime. So the criminal law was the the new Qing Criminal Code that was passed in 1911, just before the fall of the dynasty, but it was a modern criminal code and that was constructed based on the Japanese and German model. However, the civil code was uh, was basically the civil portion, in fact, of the Qing Code, which was uh, relatively conservative. Just use an example, it still defined marriage as a contract between the groom's parents and the bride's parents. So the early republic, really, the uh, the the, the uh, Supreme Court, Dali Yuan, introduced a lot of progressive judicial interpretation to help make this civil um, justice regime more progressive. But they didn't have a, a modern civil code until the nationalists made their civil code. That was the 1930 civil code, and the nationalists also had two progressive criminal code in. 1928 and 1935. And 1930 civil code and 1935 criminal code are still in effect in Taiwan. So you can see how progressive, if we use that kind of word, were they back then while they are still functioning very well in Taiwan today. So so then I will focus mostly on the 1930 civil code and 1935 criminal code and the regime of parent-child um, relations regulated by these two codes. The biggest change really was the focus um, of the legal regulation from upholding parental authority of late imperial China to protecting children's rights in 20th century China. And for example, if we use like Kinyuan's parents or Kinyuan's children, etc., as an example, we discussed that Felix I was very almost not punished, right, in the team. But um, under the nationalists, killing one's own child, regardless of the age of the child, it could be one year old, like 30 years old, right? Killing one's own child was the same as killing a stranger or a neighbor, unrelated person. So basically you can see there was some sort of like legal equality as persons between parents and children, right? And a, a kid was just another person. It wasn't your possession, right, as parents. Um, and abusing children was legally wrong and could be punished, even led to the deprivation of parental custody of children. We really, um, it must, this change must be um, um, contextualizing the bigger background that parents were, of course, no longer regarded as owners of children uh, under the nationalists, but why parents were still 
allowed raise children because they were the best, were supposed to be a best protector of children until they were deemed not by the state. So basically, the state was the real parents, right? And the children were the treasured property or asset of the nation state. And the parents were entrusted by the state to raise the children for the state, if that makes sense. And because of that, the children became sort of like equals with their parents in terms of legal personality, right? Even though, you know, at least, you know, we probably will go there within a few minutes, before the children reach adulthood, they were still under protection and authority of parents. But in terms of, you know, they, 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 they had nominal equal status because everyone was subject to direct state control and state protection. And I will just use one case to show the two aspects. The first was first, the abuse, uh, abusing children was punished and parents could be deprived of their custody. But also children, adult children were allowed to sue parents. That was almost impossible under impure law because during the team, if a child, an adult child, accused his own parent, even if accusation proved to be true, and he would be subject to three years of penal servitude, even if what he said was true. And it was almost impossible for the case to be proved true because usually the court didn't take the children's testimony seriously, right? But then this case, you can see the upside, you know, it was turned upside down in the 20th century. It was a 1933 case uh, from Beijing. There was a young woman called uh, Yang Jingshi. She took her mother and her younger sister to the police to accuse her mother of abducting her younger sister, Xiao Wu, right, seven years old. So Yang Jingshi said her mother was addicted to opium and heroin. So, so she sold her younger sister into a marriage as adoptive daughter-in-law, Tong Yangxi, and got some money. And it was Yang Jingshi and her other older, a younger sister who got money together to redeem their youngest sister. But then her mom tried to uh, abduct the child again, to try to sell her again in another like marriage, etc. So what she wanted was to send her mom to the uh, rehabilitation center. Uh, and she wanted the custody of her younger sister. And eventually she got it. Her mother was sent to the drug rehabilitation center and her younger sister was entrusted to her. And not just that, the police asked the local police station in the residential region where Yang Jingshi lived to closely monitor the situation just in case after her mother was released and her mother would take the uh, small daughter to try to engage her into marriage, right, again for the money. And at that point, after 1930, parents were no longer uh, had the responsibility or right to arrange even marriage for children. So it's just like nothing. It, she was not supposed to engage her daughter into any marriage, not to mention get, uh, get money. But also, you know, her daughter was able to accuse the mother and got her into the rehabilitation center. And, and the mother's custody of the daughter was deprived because she couldn't observe her duty as a mother. So you can see like children were allowed to sue parents 
for their own interests or for other people's interests. There were a lot of cases in marriage or poverty, etc., right? Children were allowed to sue parents just as you can sue your neighbor if he offended you. And also, child abuse was taken really seriously. There were cases like I encountered that the children started to defend their parents to say like, yeah, I did something wrong. That's why my mom beat me. <laughs> like, you know, but then the still police need to say like, keep up, uh, not kidding. Beating your own child is a crime. You just shouldn't do it, right? The child abuse was taken seriously and children were allowed to uh, sue their parents, which means children's rights were the focus of the law, not parental authority. So thank you. Thank you so much for your answer again. So now let's turn to the next chapter of your book, chapter five of the book. For this chapter, I want to invite you to talk about the concept of legal majority that distinguish not only adults from minors, but minors, but also Republican law that honors such a differentiation from Qing law that up Held parental control over grown, sorry, grown up and minor children alike. Yeah, you really got the key concept of the whole 20th century legal reform regarding parent-child relations. I think it's the most important reform that you know the introduction of the whole uh, concept of legal majority or chengnian. So before uh, the 20th century, like under the Qing or Ming or before the the, the, the late imperial China. There was, yes, there was sort of like majority, but only when there was a criminal case in, in, in terms of judging the criminal intent. For example, the people under 16 was regarded as possessing only limited capability to make judgments. So if they were victims, usually the, uh, the penetrators would be punished more seriously. If they were penetrators, they were punished uh, less seriously because they were not supposed to have the capacity to make the decision. But in terms of parent-child relations, there was no such a thing as a legal majority. For example, if a mother was in her 70s and then she accused her uh, son who was in his 50s and it was actually her son who brought in the family income, the magistrate would still say the mother and young cultivated the son for 50 years, right? Even though obviously we know that it was a son who labored to support the mom, but conceptually, conceptually speaking, it was the mother who had authority and who was cultivating the son as long as she lived. So parenthood was a lifelong privilege, right? It was a relationship the authority lasts forever until the parent's death. But in the 20th century, the legal majority, the concept was introduced in the sense that before a person reached legal majority, he or she was under authority, guardianship of his or her parents, right? His or her parents made decisions for the child. The child was educated, disciplined by the parents. But, but once he or she reached a certain age, he or she was supposed to be just another person an independent person. It doesn't mean her mom or his mom was not his mom, right? It was just, he was an adult who was in charge of his own or her own business in terms of, for example, marriage, for example, property management, right? It had really significant influence uh, over two fields. And uh, that's how I discussed in this chapter that first was marriage. Marriage was regarded as a contract between the bride's parents and groom's parents in late imperial China. So we often discuss 
marriage as a so-called woman's issue. But the thing was, during the Qing, for example, a man didn't have a say in his own marriage. His mom did, right? It was the same to some extent, like to women and men, because they were not supposed to make their own decisions regarding their own marriages, as long as they had the parents, right? And But in the 20th century, if we look at 1930 civil code, it defined marriage as a contract or agreement made between the husband and wife in their own accord. So self-determination. It wasn't freedom, right? It's just self-determination. But the parents didn't have any say in any of this, except in the case that in the manner children, still parents were not supposed to make a marriage contract or betrothal contract for their son or daughter, but they, they had a veto power. So if, for example, a 17-year-old boy wanted to marry a 15-year-old girl, in theory, it was okay under Republican law. Um, but first, the contract should be made between the boy and girl. Second, the, parent, the parents had veto power. So if they disagreed, they could disapprove. The marriage. It was very similar to, for example, in the United States, in many states, it's the same that manner marriage is allowed, but it's not a marriage um, arranged by the parents. It's just the parents had a veto power. So you can see once a person reached adulthood, that was a 20 years of age for um, nationalist China, they were there, they were on their own. They were entitled to make their own decisions about with whom they wanted to live, where they wanted to live, and also also property, right? And if they earn money after they turned adult, it was just their money. The parents had no claim. And in late imperial China, because of the so-called we discussed that, you know, if I'm a mom, I'm in my 70s, my son's making money, and I want all his income submitted to me, and he disagree, I send him to the county court to be beaten, to be kangued, and the money is mine, basically, right? And what he earned is mine, and he's a secondary owner, right, of his own money, basically. But in the 20th century, it's totally overturned, up, upside, uh, upside down. For example, there was a um, case from 1940s that, uh, um, let me see, yeah, there was a guy, yes, it's called Shao uh, Zhongsan, and his wife, Shao Tianshi, sued their son, Shao Sixian, in 1947, because, you know, this guy, this old guy, just lost his job and he had five minor children. And his eldest son was already 27 and he had a job, only one wife and one small daughter to support. So he wanted his portion of the uh, his son's income. And he used this, this old man used a lot of like more language to say, oh, my son like filial part, he needed to be punished, uh, so we uphold fundamental human ethics. And the court handled it as a so-called fuyang, elderly support case. And then eventually they uh, reached a mediated deal that the son would give the father 40% of his income. It seems a lot, right? But still, if we look at you know, the, the, the jobless father and mother had five minor children to support, and the son had just two family members to support, right? And if we compare that with the late imperial China, if you know this case would happen in late imperial China, first the son would be beaten, second his all his income would be basically regarded as his father's at his father's this um, 
um, uh, disposal. But the 20th um, century law really didn't emphasize on so-called fundamental human ethics. It was, yes, for humanitarian reasons in the country with very little social welfare, they required adult children to support the parents if the parents could not support themselves. But they also required parents to support adult children if the adult children couldn't support themselves. So it wasn't about ethics. It was just really about um, what they call is called for maintain basic subsistence. So you can see the logic change. Yes. But also, it's just once one reached adulthood, his money was his. But if he was under a certain age, still it was the whole family was still together. Then what he earned was basically for the whole family. Yes. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So now let's turn to the last chapter of the book. So for this session, I want to invite you to talk about the logic behind or underlying the state-sponsored refiguration of family order in general. And the generation, sorry, generational relations in particular, with the contest of China's constitutional transformation in the first half of the 20th century. So I think this question is really related with just what we just discussed, adulthood. And I would cite one of the leading figures in late Qing legal reform, Yang Du, and how he you know, conceptualized the whole thing about reform of generational relations and why we need to distinguish adults from manners, etc. So what he tried to say was, yes, upholding parent-child hierarchy was great for our empire for thousands of years because it made ruling cheap and it made maintaining order very easy. However, it's very different from other countries because other countries, they face competition. They wanted people to be innovative, energetic. But our system would not do that because even a son in his 50s needed to obey his parents in their 70s absolutely. How you can imagine any innovation or any uh, contribution to the state from people like that? So to... if China wanted to survive. What we need to do is to bring our law in line with laws in other countries. And the laws in other, in, for him, like advanced countries were all statist law, right? They distinguish manners from adults. And for manners, their parents made decisions for them. But for adults, we need to uphold their freedom so that they could have free livelihood. They could freely make contribution to the state. So we will have strong state. So eventually, the China would survive. So it's not about right and wrong. It's really about survival of the nation. And what we want in the future is So we need to connect the citizens directly to the state, not indirectly to the state. For this purpose, we need to, you know, equalize basic man-woman relationship and parent-child relationship. So everyone was subjunged directly to the state. They will make contribution to the state and they will sacrifice themselves for the state so the state could be strong. This sort of logic really dominated 20th century legal reform. And I can also cite, for example, Liang Qichao, he would say, um, uh, only the state or the nation is our father and mother. Our own fathers and mothers are secondary, right? 
And also Hu Hanmin, when Hu Hanmin as a nationalist veteran, he served as a head of the legislative branch of the nationalist government. He would say, you know, our law is different from Western law. Because Western law is too individualistic. Our law, yes, it really upholds individual liberty. But why? Because we need to separate individuals first from the family. The next step is to let them make contribution directly to the state. Right. So the purpose was to itemize individual citizens to let them serve the state directly. So we can see that uh, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, after 1949, really continued this trend, just push it to the further extreme. Right. That the nationalist period, they allow children to rebel against their parents. But they did not call for children to rebel against their parents. Right. In the end, they wanted to justify their authoritarianism with a tutelage as prescribed by the so-called father of the nation, Sun Yasin. So they give children, adult children especially, the protection, the rights. But they did not say, yeah, you should cut your ties with your parents or etc. right? They were still sort of half there in between. But Mao Zedong was beyond the father. He was not father of the nation. He was a silver navigator. Right? And he was beyond father. So they called the children to cut their ties with their parents if their parents were reactionary. And there were a lot of cases. We can see that even, for example, in 2009, there was a guy called Zhang Hongbin. He recorded how he reported on his own mother. And then he, his own mother was shot. And then many years later, he said, I'm even less than bees and birds, because um, how I could do that. But at that point, a lot of like dry guards, right? his name was literally Hongbin dry guards. A lot of dry guards denounced their parents, or some parents even let their children denounce themselves, because that if they, they themselves were regarded as reactionaries or five black categories, that was a protection of the children. Right, there was a song. The first lesson was, The father is dear, mother is dear, but Chairman Mao is much dearer than both. So you can see the logic is a continuation of the early 20th century legal reform, right? The the itemized individual to uh, subjugate them directly to the state. But of course, the Cultural Revolution was the start of the beginning because we witnessed the return of a failure piety in the aftermath of a chaotic revolution that paradoxically left the family as the only trustworthy institution for many Chinese. That's how China witnessed a return of filial piety in the 1980s, 1990s. Of course, that served the foundation of the re-instrumentalization of filial piety again in contemporary China. That state called, called citizens to be uh, filially obedient toward the state, right? Under the regime of Xi Dada, Father Xi, I'm not going to elaborate that anymore because you can see that in state propaganda or posters everywhere. Yes. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, sorry, thank you so much for your answer for your discussion. Especially, I really appreciate you the discussion about I won't say in certain sense I won't say the patriarchy 
in China is not only in Chinese society and history is not only a reality, but also I want to say a rhetoric. So anyway, so I very appreciate your answer and your talk today. So at the end of our uh, episode today, I want to talk to my audience directly. So I want to say, as a Chinese historian, I very appreciate Dr. Mara Du's new book, State and Family in China. And especially, I want to say, for my for our audience who take interest in the you know, history of China, history of a family, sorry, history of family, or history of a legal system and legal culture in East Asia. I will recommend you consider to buy a copy of Dr. Mara Du's newest book, State and the Family in China. It's a fantastic book. It's an amazing book. And so, the soft, uh, the paperback is uh, forthcoming within three months. So it's oh, much cheaper. Yeah, yeah, $30 plus dollars. Yeah, it's much cheaper than the hard, uh, hardback, yeah. Okay, thank you for your update of information. So thinking about, okay, let's, uh, I mean, people copy the book, we'll, we'll publish very soon. So please consider buying a copy of this book. It's very, I mean, very, very interesting book, very fantastic book. So um, anyway, so at the end of our discussion, our episode today, I just want to say thank you for your listening to Dr. Du, sorry, Mary du, Dr. Mary Du's introduction of her newest book, State and the Family in China. So thank you so much. Thank you.